Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. My guest today, Dr. Joanne Liu, is a professor at the School of Population and Global Health at McGill University and a practicing physician at the University of Montreal. She is the former international president of Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, and for the purposes of this conversation, she served on the Independent Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response. This panel was co-chaired by former New Zealand Prime Minister Helen Clark and former President of Liberia Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. It was formed by the World Health Organization in 2020 to provide something of an outside audit of how both the WHO and its member states were responding to COVID-19 and what steps need to be taken to prevent the next pandemic. The Independent Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response no longer exists. It formally disbanded last year after its flagship report was delivered to the World Health Assembly, which is the governing body of the WHO. However, its former members are still at it, and in mid-May this year, they issued a new report that, among other things, assesses progress against the recommendations they made last year. And the results were disappointing, to say the least. As Dr. Joanne Liu explains, world leaders need to be approaching pandemic preparedness and response as if it were a potentially existential threat to humanity on par with a nuclear catastrophe. This requires giving pandemic preparedness far greater levels of political attention than it currently receives. And to that end, the report recommends a major summit of world leaders at the UN dedicated to pandemic preparedness and response. Technical fixes are also required. Dr. Liu discusses at length the Access to COVID-19 Tools Accelerator, or ACT-A. This was a platform created in April 2020 to support the development and deployment of diagnostics, treatments, and, most prominently, vaccines for middle- and lower-income countries. COVAX, the cooperative platform to bring COVID-19 vaccines to lower- and middle-income countries, is part of ACT-A. We discuss at length why global cooperation around pandemic preparedness is lagging and what steps need to be taken in the near term to change course. It is great to have Dr. Liu back on the show. I always appreciate the perspective she brings to conversations about health access and health equity. And I always love it when the expert I interview on the show is also a regular listener of the podcast. So thank you. As always, if you have questions for me or suggestions for me, I love hearing from you. You can use the contact button on globaldispatches.org to get in touch or hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. All right, now here is my conversation with Dr. Joanne Liu. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. 
Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So the what we call the IPPPR, which is the Independent Panel for Pandemic Preparedness and Response, was basically launched after um, basically the the bit of the crisis that happened at the World Health Assembly in 2020, when all of a sudden the U.S. said uh, we will not um, continue to support at the level that we're supporting the WHO. What was put forward was that uh, maybe the WHO was not performing at the level of expectation that some member states thought. And this basically um, started a process of saying, well, maybe we need to look at uh, how the WHO responded to the COVID-19, but as well as member state. And so the general director, Dr. Tedros, decided to appoint two co-chair, which was Ellen Clark, uh, the former prime minister of New Zealand, and Ellen Sirleaf, the former president of Liberia, to uh, put together an independent panel that would evaluate the performance and the preparedness and response of WHO, but as well the member state to COVID-19. And they basically recruited uh, 12 people around the world. And this is done on a, I would say, voluntary basis for the people who are participating on the panel. And the idea was to present the next year a report to just give an idea of how was the performance in terms of response and preparedness. And what did you find? So I think that um, what one, one of the things that we wanted to hammer was the fact that it was not the first time that uh, the world has been having warning or a taste of what would be the challenge to respond to a pandemic through, through SARS, but then through, through MERS or through Ebola. And, and so we, there've been numerous commission and independent evaluation, about more than a dozen of them. And what we discover is less than 10% of the recommendations that were offered and recommended were not implemented. And so uh, the basic thing is uh, the world knew that it wasn't prepared. There were some clue and recommendation how to get better prepared, but this was not implemented. And then after that, was um, we went through a, a big lens to try to figure out you know, what is the, the, the chronogram, the timeline of how uh, the COVID-19 unfolded. Uh, and uh, what was very clear is at the outset, uh, there were some misstep in terms of calling the shot uh, when it was needed. There was some sort of delay in terms of the alert, but as well of uh, calling the public health emergency or international concern, which was not a big, big thing. You know, there was maybe a delay of, of a few weeks, but when you compare to Ebola in 20. Uh, 14, 2016, we went from a delay of six months to a delay of six weeks. 
this is the public health emergency of international concern is like the World Health Organization's version of like a five alarm fire. It's 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 the emergency button that they is pushed upon the recommendation of an independent panel. The director general can declare this uh, public health emergency. And this is supposed to be what captures international attention that a situation is indeed grave and serious and deserves everyone's utmost attention. And you're saying that back in the West Africa Ebola crisis, it took a very long time for that emergency button to be hit. Whereas uh, back in COVID, it took a shortened period of time, but still, uh, as you're saying, a little too long. Yeah, a little too long. And then the other thing was um, one of the things that the report highlighted uh, was the fact that the the principle of precaution was not applied. Meaning that as soon as we had, I would say, suspicion that human-to-human transmission was happening, it should have been shared. And what is quite interesting is when you look at some of the country response, uh, especially in Asia, many of them closed their border and then started to make, I would say, um, a, a response that was basically assuming they were human-to-human transmission, whereas the, the, the rest of the world was a bit still in denial until on January 20th, then clearly we said, yes, there's human-to-human transmission. Uh, so, so that was another, I would say, big thing. But despite all that and the fact that people have been trying to, to find a scapegoat in, in, in what happened initially with COVID-19, the reality is once the highest alert of concern on the public health emergency was, was done, which was on, on January 30th, 2020, well, basically most of the world sat on their hands for a month. The month of February was a lost month. And, and uh, basically people look at what was going on in Wuhan and just say, it's so far, this would not happen. I remember because I was in Canada and then people just say, who never get here. And, and, and instead of gearing up and preparing, basically uh, the European countries and, and, and very much so uh, the North American countries did nothing except watching instead of gearing up. And, and so when we, when we talk about the failure, the initial failure of the response to COVID-19, it's really the failure of being able to grasp the scale of the emergency back then. You have recently released a new report looking back at the work of the independent panel and whether or not it has been implemented. Can you just kind of walk me through this latest report that was released just a few days ago? And we're speaking on on Monday, May 23rd. So basically what we did is when we released our first report, we came up with a a set of recommendations that was to basically be followed right away, uh, which was basically uh, I would say, in terms of access to essential tools to fight COVID-19, and a set of recommendations that basically was saying, if you apply this set of recommendations, maybe COVID-19 might be the last pandemic. And so um, what we decided to do is six months after, and then one year after, which is now, we decided to do a follow-up report to say what happened since our recommendation. And, and our recommendations were, were pretty, I would say, straightforward to a certain extent. What was important for me was the recognition that pandemic is raised at the level of what I call existential threat, at a level like a nuclear accident, 
where we think it's so grave, it's so important that um, that country would accept to have verification of what's going on and would accept to share in full transparency the number of cases and then, and then as well uh, the proof of what's going on. And, and so we wanted to basically do a cut and paste of, of what happened after the Chernobyl event in, if I'm not mistaken, 1986, when we just said there needs to be uh, a, a specific type of alert and a specific, I would say, sequence of events that need to happen when such alarm is raised. And for me, that was one of the big things was to elevate the threat of pandemic at the level of an existential threat, like a nuclear accident, in order for head of states to really take leadership and to call the shot instead of treating a pandemic at the level of a technical public health issue where actually it will never get the traction and the finance that is necessary to respond to it. Because for me, it was it's the key that will basically uh, get the rest of the necessary traction to prevent an epidemic to become a pandemic. If that was the sort of initial goal, and if you're treating a pandemic like COVID-19 or a future pandemic as a potential existential threat to humanity, and you your demand highest levels of political attention, how do you get that political attention? How do you convince leaders that indeed this is an existential threat? Well, the idea was uh, we have been doing briefing at the UNGA over the last summer, and we were hoping for political declaration at the United Nations General Assembly in September 2021. And unfortunately, it didn't happen. But we thought it was necessary, uh, I would say, body language uh, in terms of, of securing the future. And, and basically, a lot of people rely on rather on the fact that there were this initiative of having a pandemic treaty at the level of the World Health Assembly and people thought it was good enough. There was this extraordinary uh, World Health Assembly in November last year, and they decided on a sort of a timeline where they will come back with a a proposal by 2024, which I think that um, my personal take on that is we went from uh, what I call a coalition of fairly much low action or inaction to a coalition of hesitation and negotiation. Mm. And it's rare that you win in those kind of moments. You often dilute things. The more you think about things, the more the more you hesitate and dilute the motivation and the drive to do something significant. Yeah. I mean, one of the key recommendations is to have like a key meeting at the United Nations General Assembly attended by heads of state in which they, you know, somehow declare affirm that preventing the next pandemic is a top political priority. Uh, But instead, as you just mentioned, the political momentum now has coalesced around a more perhaps modest uh, somehow international mechanism organized and debated at the World Health Assembly and the World Health, World Health Organization around like a pandemic preparedness treaty. But you're saying that's sort of like a dilution of that top level political attention that's required to, to really drive progress. Yes, I think that we have decided to rely on, on a lengthy process uh, for um, to find out the, the best recipe to prepare ourselves better to the next pandemic. And I personally think that uh, by doing so, there's going to be a lot of 
instead of putting people in front of politics, we're probably going to put politics in front of people. And, and I think it's, it's, I'm, I'm very concerned just to, to say the least. One other suite of recommendations in your most recent report is around providing more equitable access to COVID-19 and other pandemic tools in order to prevent, treat, diagnose future pandemics and in the current pandemic as well. The initial model of this was created in April 2020 uh, through a a coalition that convened around the World Health Organization uh, called the Access to COVID-19 Tools Accelerator, ACT-A or ACT-A. Can you just remind us what that was? And and we'll then talk about what we can do to make this system stronger. The Access to COVID-19 Tools Accelerator was, in essence, um, a coalition of different entities the Gates Foundation, the Welcome Trust Philanthropy, but in addition to that, like Fine, Gavi, uh, Unitaid, the World Bank, CEPI. So these are all organizations that are involved in uh, in research and development and discovery. Um, And and in addition to that, they were the WHO and the World Bank. And and basically what happened in 2020, but I was not part of that, so describing that, you know, from a, a very, I would say, um, uh, from what I read and, and from what I heard. But basically, um, it was a coalition of, of, of the willing, of people who just say, this is pretty big, what is happening, let's get together, we know each other, and sit around a table and, and just try to shape a mechanisms that would allow uh, to foster for discovery and foster for for redistribution of those recovery once they're done. And we'll do that at the level of vaccine, of uh, diagnostic tests and treatment in addition to healthcare system that they had afterwards. And, and so when they did that, it, I think that the intention were good, but I think that it was, um, it was shaped and, and I would say created in a sort of non-inclusive way. Uh, meaning by that that um, it's it's kind of odd as some key government representing the low and middle income country were not represented. It it is odd as well to to find out that there was no civil society representation per se, and that created some sort of blind spot to uh, to what was necessary for the world to uh, respond to a pandemic with the right tools. How did those blind spots become manifested over the years as um, Act A's various investments began being created and, and distributed? What is interesting when you when you talk about those 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 people who started this this initiative, initially it was supposed to be for all the countries. They just said we're going to pull everything together, and then after that we're going to redistribute, and then. Very early on, people realized that that the high-income countries were making the bilateral deal outside of this, uh, I would say, agreement or, or, or agreed platform. And so it, it ended up being more the platform of distribution, distribution of new discovery to fight COVID-19 for the low- and middle-income country. And then, and then to finally, at the end, it's almost a caricature, but it ended up being more like a clearing house of the surplus of vaccine, 
Uh, I'm talking mainly about vaccine because I think that's the pillar of, of the vaccine that's been the most performing and the most financed at the end of the day. Um, but this is what happened. Uh, and, and I think in terms of blind spot is, is the fact that, um, I don't think if you had low and middle income country that they would have, um, not think of having an access policy for them. I don't think if they would have been low and middle income country, they would not at least raise the issue that you have an ultra cold chain vaccine. This might be a very, very big challenge for them, and they might not be able to distribute this kind of vaccine. And 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 so uh, uh, you don't have the same means and the same concerns when you are a low and middle income country versus when you are a high income country. Uh, because of, of, of question of budget and question of priorities for the health of your of your uh, people. And in the report, you uh, note, or the report notes, that ACT-A should be reconfigured as an end-to-end platform that puts equity and public health at its heart. What do you mean by an end-to-end platform that puts equity at its heart? I think end-to-end, is it, it's really that it, it, it's forcing... All the the possible, uh, I would say, issue that may happen that would prevent an access to the discovery. Not you know stopping in in the middle of 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 the process, thinking that goodwill will happen. It will not happen. So so it means that we need to have a pre-negotiated deal that will basically uh, over uh, overshoot any problem of access. And, and making sure that it's affordable and available uh, for the high-income country as well as the low- and middle-income country. Can you give me an example of what that might look like in practice? When you have a, a good, if it's if it's manufactured, where will it be manufactured? Will will the manufacturing will will take place? close to, to the low and middle income country. And if it's so, who will be in charge? And if we were end to end, then it's probably the low and middle income country will have, uh, I would say, would be in charge, like the hub that we're planning, that is, you know, being developed right now in South Africa, instead of having, I would say, still some string attached with the intellectual property and, and uh, the, the flexibility of this intellectual property. I'm glad you brought up the intellectual property issue because the report also recommends a waiver to the WTO agreement on trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights trips um, for tools related to pandemic prevention. Uh, How important is that? I mean, we've seen some progress on trips waivers around vaccines though it hasn't been enacted yet but you know notably the head of the WTO and also the Biden administration somewhat surprisingly is is supporting uh this trips waiver on vaccines how significant important is enacting trips waivers on pandemic prevention tools how important is that to to the broader cause well i think there is um there is a, a division there's some people who think it's a red herring and and the reality what needs to be done it's it's basically um, a transfer of 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 knowledge and know-how and uh and and regionalization of the production of of a, of a of a new discovery or or a vaccine for example 
but um, there's some other people where I think this is where I sit, uh, which believe that um, by not having the intellectual uh, property wave, you would always create, a, I would say, a dynamic or an ecosystem of dependence. And then you would not create, uh, I would say, autonomy and self-reliance following middle-income country. And I think the, the biggest issue about ACTA, there's a foundational flaw in the conceptualization of this because it's based on charity model, meaning on the goodwill of people to share. And, and this is why it is important that the trips waiver happen eventually. Of course, you know, it will, it might not make a huge difference for, for, for the current product by the time we, we agree and by the time that people get themselves to do it. But it will certainly would make a huge difference in the next pandemic if we were to accept that in times of pandemic, trips waiver should be, should be happening. You've identified uh, almost political stasis that's taken hold right now in which pandemic prevention has fallen far from the top priority uh, of international leaders. Uh, your report has identified sort of technical deficiencies with, with how we've dealt with COVID-19 and also um, suggestions for how we might deal with the, the future pandemic. Like, What do we need to fill the political gap and, and fill the, the technical gap in order to prevent the, the next pandemic in ways that, as you said, prevent like an existential catastrophe to humanity? That's a big question, Mark. <laughs> but I still think at the end of the day that it, it boils down to political will. And, and, uh, and this is what it was in 2014, 2016 for, for Ebola. And I think this is what it is today for uh, COVID-19. It's, it's about the political will of, of, um, of wanting to, to basically um, get a pandemic response that is accessible to, to all countries and not only accessible to the high-income country. And, and the fact that we are not recognizing that we're so interdependent and interconnected, and it's not sustainable to have only high-income country to basically respond with the, the best tool and, and hoping that as well they're going to booster themselves uh, uh, you know, out of the pandemic it's 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 as well uh, how can I say naive and and short sighted because um, you you may you may protect yourself but we saw it you know with what happened with Omicron uh, you're not safe uh, until you know everybody is safe because as long as the virus will be running loose in one part of the world there's going to be mutation there's going to be a risk of mutation escaping the protection of the vaccines that we have. And we've went through that already to that jig once, and we might go again through it. And so, so it, it, it's about political will of, of coming together and getting, I would say, and building a governance and a way of responding that everybody get to the finish line together. And I think we're far from that. But this is why by elevating pandemic at the level of an existential threat will, I do believe, will create the political, I would say, traction and will. But I think for the time being, we're far from that. Well, looking forward in the next coming, say, year or so, 
Are there any inflection points that you'll be looking towards that will suggest to you whether or not we are progressing towards mustering that political will that, that you identified? Well, I think that that uh, we're going to see, you know, how the IHR uh, regulation, which is, you know, the process for the uh, to do the public health emergency of international concern, will basically uh, um, morph itself into. Because um, if we, if somehow countries are able to accept that when there's a public health emergency of international concern, it means that the WHO has the right. And actually, the duty to go uh, and and validate what is going on, like we do for a, a nuclear accident, and then and then can, as well without the permission, share the real data in real time. That would be a, a step forward in the good direction. So you're you're referring to the 2005 international health regulations, which are like the operating rules under which uh, the World Health Organization investigates outbreaks like this. And the IHR uh, was created uh, after the SARS uh, epidemic pandemic back in in 2003. Uh, so you're saying just like th- this kind of technical reforms and strengthening, politically strengthening the international health regulations to give it a more robust ability to respond to pandemics is is something you'll be looking towards in the next year? Well, I think for me that that's one of the first steps that is necessary. Uh, Because if we're not able to get the right information in a timely fashion, if every time there is an epidemic, because there will be more epidemic, uh, it's a certainty. What, what, what our role now, knowing all the tools that we have, it's to make sure that an epidemic doesn't become a pandemic. And so, so it means that we need to abort this transformation of, of, of an epidemic into a pandemic straight from the beginning. And to do so, then it means that you need to get the right surveillance, the right alert system, and, and, and the right information in a timely fashion. If each time we have to negotiate days or weeks, we're always going to give a head start to the virus and we're going to be always playing catching up. And, and that's not good. That's, we saw how fast it went with COVID-19. Dr. Leo, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Oh, and thank you for being a listener to the show for, for so long. I appreciate it. I always love when, when listeners uh, become the experts I interview. My pleasure. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Dr. Leo. That was great. Uh, As I said at the outset, I always appreciate the perspective she brings to conversations about health access and health equity. And just a note that you can find the reports that we reference on theindependentpanel.org. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.